Let us turn to our Bibles, to Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 9. Verses 30 to 32. Let us listen attentively. Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 32. Then he departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Let us pray. We read here, God, in summary fashion, uh, this amazing detail, again, that Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, didn't want other people to know where he was because he knew already at this time there were plans to kill him and his time was not yet ready. And thus our extraordinary Savior exercised and did things in a very ordinary manner like the rest of us, because he too was fully man as well as fully God. May we learn from this, may we be encouraged by this fact, we pray, amen. I kind of struggled with the title, as you can imagine. I don't want to smirk our Lord and Savior. He's not ordinary in that sense, but he is ordinary because he's a human. He's fully a man. In that sense, he's ordinary like the rest of us, or living with a body and a soul. So I named it Extraordinary and Ordinary Savior to highlight these two things which are here in this text. In particular, the things that he does, which is ordinary, he avoids trouble. That's what we all do. Nothing wrong with that and everything good in the right context. But he also talks of something extraordinary and amazing that the Son of God will die and rise again on the third day. We often think of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ while living on earth as having a life full of miracles. At least I did that he was anything but ordinary. That the extraordinary was everywhere and in everything that he did. And in one sense, because he is God and everything that he did, of course, that was extraordinary. But he was quite ordinary in many, many ways at the same time. Miracles did not start flowing until what? He started his ministry late in life, about age 30. And even then, only for a few years. Just being God in the flesh was extraordinary, obviously. But while extraordinary... Many miracles he enacted, he still did many normal, everyday things, like a man. Because both of these are here in the text. The ordinary act of avoiding trouble and the future extraordinary act of the resurrection. I wish to unpack this, I hope, to our edification here this morning. The first point, Jesus used ordinary means for living, just life. He was born of a virgin. Ordinary birth through an ordinary mother. That's, of course, the miraculous part. We'll talk about the second part, so she'll be more properly born of a woman. Ordinary birth through an ordinary mother. That is, the giving forth, not the conception itself. Luke one twenty-seven and following. And behold, I will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and his name shall be called Jesus. Not artificial mother or anything like that, but an ordinary mother. He was truly a man with a mind and the soul of a man. And born of a woman like everyone else. Came down from the glories of heaven, where all the angels praised him, brothers and sisters, day in and day out, and did his bidding. And yet here he is, doing ordinary things, and being born, and being a child, even, and growing up, to a world he created, becoming a stranger among his own people, as we know, who eventually rejected him, and casted him off, and ignored him. 
So, born of a woman, just like our babies here, Winnell Beth and others, nurtured and taken care of by his mom, just like we were and the children around us were. This is our Lord and Savior, the creator of heaven and earth, was a baby. An ordinary, no one looked at the baby and said, something strange about this baby. The only thing they would ever know is they knew the story of the angels or something like that. Mary spoke this truth to them, but otherwise, no one would know because he did ordinary things. An ordinary life, raised by his family and his community. He was part of it. He grew up with them. He submitted to them as parents, as we know, even though they were, what, sinful? Probably gave conflicting orders. You know, we've done that. And unjustly angry, perhaps, even at him. We don't know. But we do know the parents were not sinless like he was. He grew up with his siblings, as we know. They were probably chiding him sometime for their own fun, for their anger, for their jealousy. We don't know again, but we do know it was ordinary. It's not unreasonable that all these things happened to him like it happened to the rest of us. Because he, too, was a child. He, too, was a young teenager and the like. He grew up with his peers at the age of 12. He followed the customs of the day. As you recall, in Luke chapter 2, and attended the Feast of Passover before he was 13. He was in that year. That's how they thought of these things at the time. They weren't as precise as we were, as it were. And so at age 13, he would be considered a man old enough to own the covenant, to be a son of the commandment, they call it. Jesus probably also went to school. All the older commentaries, I haven't looked at a lot of newer commentaries, uh, believe so, especially since we've dug up and found out at the time of Jesus, before 70 A.D., before the fall of Jerusalem, the Jews boasted of 400 schools in Jerusalem alone. Wherever there was a synagogue, there was a school. That's how they did it. That's how they propagated Judaism and maintained Judaism, especially against the Hellenistic, that is the Greek influence that grew up during the conquest of Alexander the Great several hundred years before. That's still influencing the Roman Empire. And so they had synagogues, and they had schools, and it was in a typical small town, like exactly where Jesus was. He had to deal with his neighborhood kids, whatever that entailed. They were sinners, I'm sure, and they did something perhaps wrong to him, we don't know, but he was interacting just like the rest of us again, and yet without sin. And thus he could sympathize with us, brothers and sisters. He knew what it was like to be a child, to be a teenager, to be a young man. He held a job. He was a carpenter's son who worked until the age of 30. And he went to church every week. Not only the temple, but the synagogue. The place where they exercised a form of worship and instruction and learning and knowledge. There was no sacraments in it. He attended midweek churches events events as well. Uh, There were annual events at different times in the seasons. We know the yearly feast in Jerusalem, for example, and Passover and all that. And he had to deal with Co-workers, probably, and customers and the like with his father. Again, everyday activities and business dealings and the like as this dealt with his job. And again, dealing with sinners around him. He also loved his people like the rest of us are called to do. He loved his family. He loved his nation. As we know, he was there for what? The house of Israel. Not for the Gentiles, per se, although they got some extra blessings on the side. He was focusing there upon the Jews of old. And in fact... What else did he do in his compassion and his love for his people? He was up on the mount and he wept over Jerusalem. Like when we weep and are sad about sad things that happen in our nation. Brothers and sisters, 
He was very ordinary, very much like us. Except without sin, praise the Lord. We know he was hungry. He was tired. He was sad. He fasted in the desert 40 days and 40 nights. And afterwards he was hungry, the Bible tells us. Of course, the weeping over Jerusalem and the like, and he had to sleep, as we know. He walked everywhere. Now, this is a little different for us. We're blessed with technology, bikes, things like that. They walked everywhere, miles on end, it seemed like. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, he said, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So although he was ordinary, in many ways, he was more ordinary, we realize he was poor as far as we're concerned. Didn't really have his own house. He was at other people's houses. Mother-in-law's house of Peter and everything else. He taught and prayed, instructed. We do the same thing. We pray before God our Savior. We too instruct one another. At times we may have a job that especially have to do that. Instruct our children. He took, his whole ministry was teaching, taking time and effort in a wild land, more or less, to talk to large crowds, to pray, and to teach and instruct them of the things of the Lord because he loved them. These are ordinary, everyday things. That's nothing to stand out and amazing. And it is amazing for us, I hope, because we realize he's more than just a man with a body and a soul. But God Almighty walking among us, doing ordinary things. It's amazing, brothers and sisters. He can indeed relate He sympathizes with us as we read in Hebrews because he was one of us. This is unique. Christianity is very unique. They talk about the gods walking among them in the Greek literature, but their gods had bodies already. Zeus had a body. Hercules had a body. That's what they always were. They were just like Superman or Wonder Woman, souped up humans. And they had petty fights and all these things and jealousies. That's what they all taught in the ancient Near East. Our God is nothing like that. He became one of us to show us that he sympathized with us. And by these examples even, it's okay to be ordinary and do ordinary things if we do it for the Lord. Lastly, he avoided trouble. So here we're drilling down in the text, of course. He departed from there where he was in the last conversation of the prior verses. And he did not want anyone to know it. He left secretly. I don't think anybody believes Jesus was a coward. He was being wise as a serpent. He told them, you must be gentle as doves and wise as serpents. Don't be foolish. Use common sense. When things are bad, avoid the bad times or bad circumstances or bad people. He wanted to avoid all of that. This is, I think, the third or fourth time we read in Mark that he didn't want other people to know or he wanted to avoid the crowds and the leadership because surely the Jews had spies. They would have People there, we know they had false witnesses at the kangaroo court claiming things that weren't really there and true and twisting it. So he was using common sense to avoid an early death, an early capture. <clears throat> he says, For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men. It's happening. It's as good as done. Jesus is aware of these things because he's more than just a man, but he's still a man and does normal things that we too. Because we are called to imitate Jesus, are we not? Have you ever thought about that? I think often, again, may, maybe my limit, 
limited experience in my own thinking, I thought of imitating Jesus meant you must do the great moral acts that he did. Be righteous and holy, but also just ordinary. He did his calling. He had a job. We have a calling. We have a job. And here he used common sense to avoid problems. So it's the, both the moral acts of our Lord and the common sense ways of living. Love, joy, and obedience, to be sure. To avoid unnecessary problems and confrontations. To work quietly. Peter tells us that. Work with our hands. To work well unto the Lord. Take care of your family and your friends. Don't be presumptuous upon God's providence. Well, the Lord's with me. Jesus wasn't like, well, God's with me, so I can do whatever I want. He did nothing of the kind, did he? And yet, he was God. The Father was indeed with him. And he'd call ten thousands of ten thousand angels, he says, elsewhere. But he does not. Because his time had not come and he was willingly going to the cross for you and for me. He willingly took upon him the King of kings and Lord of lords, the great majestic one. Took the body and the soul of a man. Way beneath him. Like us becoming an aunt, an ant. It's beneath us to become an ant, an insect. Kind of freaky and disgusting. I can't imagine the great divide between God and becoming man. An ordinary man. He wasn't extraordinary in the way we use that word today. I mean extraordinary as an above and beyond nature and the like. Typically we use that word, if this guy's extraordinary, he's amazing. We mean he's, he's really amazing in the sense of intelligent. He's done great things. He's quick-witted. He's got a great job. He's shown the world he can get things done or something like that. Jesus had none of that. He was a nobody. When he became a rabbi, he did get short fame, as we know, but it died off pretty quick after three years, before the three-year mark. It was short-lived. And so, we see here, in this text again, in short fashion, in these words, an ordinary Savior, that is, is an ordinary man. But more than that, as we know, he was extraordinary. The second point, Jesus used extraordinary means, in particular the resurrection, his ordinary life included extraordinary miracles, as we know, to attest to his mission, to display his power, to convince his weak followers that I'm not just an ordinary Jew doing ordinary things, although I am doing them. I'm doing more than that. There's signification behind all that I do, a great extraordinary moral signification, and even the ordinary things that I do because I am more than a man. I'm more than just another prophet. Right? The miracles attest, the, some of the unique miracles attest, that he's more than just, oh, I'm just another Old Testament prophet doing amazing things. No one thought the Old Testament prophets were anything more than a prophet, although that's extraordinary already. Amazing. But he's above and beyond that, and these miracles attest and point to this, and his words especially beyond that. Because many of the miracles are not dissimilar from the Old Testament miracles, from the prophets themselves. It's the words especially that show his extraordinary office, his extraordinary person, and his extraordinary goal to save his people from their sins. The convincing of the weak followers and the display of these miracles is one of the themes of Mark. See these things, but don't see. They seem to hear. Here, and Mark, again, this is the third or fourth time, on the other hand, in which the disciples are, verse 32, they didn't understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. They didn't sink in still. Right? He walks across the water, so he shows you something special there. He calms the storm, and they're scared spitless, and he's like, why are you hardened hearts? 
Why aren't you rejoicing? It's kind of how I take it. And excited, this is your Messiah. I'm your Savior. But you don't get it, he's telling them. And here again, although he doesn't berate them because he decides to be compassionate towards them, as he often is, or as we say more properly, always is, but sometimes that compassion comes out in chiding them. No chiding here. They don't understand this saying. We're afraid to ask them. Maybe even mumbled amongst themselves. We read that elsewhere in the Gospels. Certainly held it in their hearts. Why, why is he avoiding the crowds? He's the, he's the most famous guy in Israel now. This is wonderful. Today we'd be thinking, we've got a great church growth movement method going on here. Why would he hide? We can get the church growing more. He didn't do anything of the kind. It was unique that way. It's still extraordinary. For he taught his disciples and said to them, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of the men, and they will kill him. This disturbs them. And after he's killed, he will rise the third day. This amazes them. It's more than they can comprehend, brothers and sisters. They didn't have the, the written word that we do. It's accomplished and all the evidence therein. But they had enough evidence. They were literally walking with Jesus. Can't imagine that. They were afraid to ask him. Maybe too much pride. We don't know the particulars. We just know they didn't ask. So the miracles did not convince them that Jesus was extraordinary, unfortunately, in a more than human extraordinary way, but a divine extraordinary They were taught from a young age, as you recall, that the Messiah would come with great power to conquer the enemies of the Jewish church. They were expecting Rome to be overthrown by the Messiah. Many of them were. There were different schools of thought, of course, but that's the predominant one. And it would be, frankly, embarrassing to see your would-be king hiding and afraid. And to die? What kind of a king dies? He should be fighting for his people with a sword, conquering his enemies. Because they are the enemies of the church, the Old Testament church, just as much as the Canaanites were, or the Assyrians who invaded them, or Egypt and everyone else, the Romans. And yet, God's like, no, something different's happening here, as we know. What he taught was too much for them to fully grasp, unfortunately. But we can see at the miracles of our Lord and Savior, the redeeming power and his love, and the amazing plan of our Savior from eternity past, unpacking before our very eyes, before their very eyes here as he moves along in his own life. And so the very same things we went through, his birth, which was ordinary through a normal woman, was also extraordinary because it's through a virgin. The incarnation and the fullness of time in Galatians 4.4 is the language of Paul. When God's plan was executed 2,000 years ago to direct all things for his glory and for our good. And they happened as they were supposed to happen, and the Son of God took upon himself the body in the incarnation, a miraculous event that even today people still mock. The conception of Jesus was extraordinary, even though the birth of Jesus was ordinary. The life of miracles was there, although it comes later in his ministry, that is at age 30. Now, the miraculous things in his ministry are of two folds, his own and the Father above with the Holy Spirit. There are two major events in his ministry of extraordinary signification. The baptism of the Holy Spirit by John, that is, here he is in the river, the Spirit comes down upon him to show he's got a new ministry here, this ministry no one else has, a special ministry in which God the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. 
That's extraordinary. It's not Jesus extraordinary, but God above telling the whole world, Jesus is extraordinary. It's not Jesus' miracle, it's the Father's miracle with the Holy Spirit showing the world and around him, John the Baptizer, this is an extraordinary man doing extraordinary things for his people. Wonderful things. He healed all kinds of physical ailments, as we know. The deaf, the blind, the dumb. Epilepsy, leprosy, other unknown sicknesses. He fed thousands. He turned water into wine. This ordinary man did extraordinary things because he was an extraordinary God, loving his people and showing evidence of that love through those miracles. And to, of course, move them to believe and love him. He controlled the weather, as only God can, stopping the raging storm, walking on the water. And, of course, he cast out demons, even thousands of demons, for we are legion, they said. And God Almighty, the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God, didn't care. I don't, it could be legions of legions. It's nothing to me. Get out. Be cast back to hell. This is our Savior. This is our Lord, brothers and sisters. Ordinary in so many ways, and yet extraordinary in all that he did. And the greatest of those miracles, one of the greatest, is, of course, the resurrection. Think about it. The disciples have seen people raised from the dead. We think we've seen that. You hear these stories. Well, it was extraordinary work of the doctor. This person was knocked out for two or three uh, minutes or something. He was dead, and he comes back to life. I don't think those people are really dead the way we understand. I think we have a, we're have we kind of missing something about what death really entails. They back then were making sure that someone's dead what, two or three days. Then we know they're really dead because they didn't know enough. Maybe he's unconscious. Maybe he had a coma or something like that. From what we have, I don't think we've seen anything that they saw. Where Jesus tells the young lady, "Come forth." She wakes up because only the Lord and Savior can raise them from the dead, as though they were just sleeping. They saw that, and yet what Jesus is talking about is different than being raised from the dead. Right? The resurrection. The future resurrection and the body that Jesus will have at his resurrection and did have and does have right now is unique and different, isn't it? Sin no longer has dominion over it. The effects of sin are now gone. And so she being raised from the dead in front of her parents is still the same body that's going to decay and die. That's not a resurrection, properly speaking. The resurrection we mean in theology and in the Bible is a new body. Whatever that means, I don't know. It's going to be amazing because, yeah, I know I'm young, I suppose, only 51. But I'm feeling like, okay, age is catching up. This body, don't like some of the things going on. That's the resurrection. That's what Jesus is talking about. And I think they get a, a glimpse of that. They, 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 they know something different that's here with Jesus than other people when he says, I will rise the third day. I'll rise up. Of course, in Jesus' case, his glorified body doesn't have to overcome the effects of sin, but it's still a glorified body. The resurrection of Christ, rising from the dead, was offensive to the scribes and Pharisees who wanted victory over Rome, not victory over their own sins, to the disciples who were confused, and to the people today, unfortunately, who want a different Jesus than the one who must live and die for his people. People mock a God who died for his people. I've seen it. They think it's ridiculous. 
and yet it's not. It's one of the most wonderful things, the most extraordinary thing he can do for us. And rise from the dead, because in rising from the dead, he has victory over sin and death and Satan itself. He has shown the world that he is stronger than the effects of sin, stronger than sin, stronger than Satan himself, and death, which is the sting of sin. And he did it for you and did it for me, brothers and sisters. Our resurrection in the future is based upon the resurrection of Christ 2,000 years ago. That he will rise again from the third day. We can and do, I pray, understand this, unlike the disciples. And we should not be afraid to ask and to inquire into these matters, to learn and to grow thereby, to be encouraged. The things of this world will pass away. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, has promised that. That we should look forward to an extraordinary resurrection in the future, a better world, a new heaven, a new earth. And not be bogged down so much with the things of this world. To put our troubles into his hands. Ordinary hands, yes, because he can sympathize with us. But extraordinary hands, nevertheless, because he can do more than sympathize. He empowers us with his Holy Spirit. He gifts us with the word of God and salvation and faith and the fruit of the Spirit. Even as we live ordinary lives. We can do this because Jesus walked before us as a trailblazer, as Hebrews tells us. And in his spirit is also within us an extraordinary way to live an ordinary life to our extraordinary Savior. Let us pray. We are grateful, God. We are grateful for your Son. We are thankful, Lord our Savior, for his work. And in ordinary ways, he identified with us and lived for us in this life, but also extraordinary because Unlike us, God, he was sinless in thought, word, and deed. And every act that he did was pure and holy. And he did it for us in our stead. And in the resurrection, we are raised with him as well. That is, with the future hope and promise as well as the reality of the gift of the Holy Spirit from that ascension on high after the resurrection. To have that power within our hearts that we are born again. And that we have new thoughts and new desires of our Lord and Savior to live and follow him all the days of our life. We pray and ask for more of your spirit, more sanctification, more growth, and more love and faith. Although ordinary in many ways is extraordinary because it's a gift of the spirit from an extraordinary Savior. Help us, we pray to that end, to glorify you in all that we do. Amen. Let us stand and let us sing to our Savior, our extraordinary Savior, hymn 367. 367.
from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes he arose a victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign he arose hallelujah Christ arose they watch his bed Jesus my Savior Lee they seal the dead Jesus my Lord up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes he arose a victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign arose he arose hallelujah Christ arose death cannot keep his prey Jesus my Savior he tore the bars away Jesus my Lord up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes he arose victor the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign arose he arose hallelujah christ arose Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen.